Hello and welcome to Back of the Net and Beyond, where today I'm going to be speaking to former Manchester United, Leeds, Sheffield United and Watford professional footballer, Danny Webber. How's it going, Webber? You all right? All good, Danny. Yeah, no, no complaints. Thank you, mate. Good stuff. Long time no see. I know, mate. We've got a, we've got a rich history. You know, we go back 20, 24 years. 24 yeah. years. 24 years to when we were really short together. So, yeah, yeah. long time. Yeah, mate, long time. Crazy, mate. You, know, you, know, you know a lot of my past, I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> nah, it's definitely a good thing. No skeletons in your closet, mate. <laughs> um, so how's life at the minute then, like, kind of in terms of what you're doing now? If you want to just let everyone know kind of your day-to-day -day life and what you're involved in. Yeah, so obviously finished playing sort of four years ago at Salford, three and a half, four years ago. Um, now I'm an agent, so that's, yeah. that takes up the bulk of what I do. So I decided to come onto this side of the this side of the fence, if you like, and impart some of my good, bad, and indifferent um, experiences and help the lads. You know, when you when you can see what road they're going down, um, good, bad, and indifferent. If they're doing very well, to keep them on that sort of path, and to if they're struggling a little bit, to be able to help them to point them in the right direction. Mm. Um, alongside that, I went and got my. UEFA B license, UEFA A license, to have a look at it from a coach's point of view. Um, and I do a lot of stuff in the media as well. So I speak as a pundit. Um, I do certain things for MUTV, different, you know, BBC, BBC Sky at times, um, talk sports and Five Lives, World Service, and, you know, whoever will listen to me, really. Yeah. Wow, that's massive. So obviously it sounds like you've got a lot going on there. Um, mm -hmm. And it's kind of, you've covered all bases. So you said, like, because obviously, as we're growing up, we all had agents and stuff. And sometimes an agent's only there. Back in the day, I'm talking about past experience. Sometimes only there when maybe there's a sniff of you getting a move and then suddenly they're on the phone all the time. But it seems like nowadays, especially how you just mentioned there, it's more of a well-rounded kind of um, service that agents are providing. So not only on the pitch, but off the pitch as well. So players' well-being and kind of um, trying to push them in the right direction. Obviously, it helps when... It's coming from someone like yourself who's had a sustained career at a higher level, which we'll talk about a bit later on. Um, but again, so you're, you're an agent and you're looking after players, but then you're also in the media and you're seeing things from behind the screen as well. So you've got that aspect to, to obviously add to your clients. And also, you mentioned that you're uh, obviously a, a coach as well. So you're seeing things from all kind of facets there, on the pitch, off the pitch, behind the screen. So how does that bode for you? Because obviously that must... That must resonate well with your clients. I, th I think it's every, you know, I, I look at it and I think every, every player wants something different. So you're a fit for some and not a fit for others. Certain people think they know certain things and do know certain things and others, you know, everybody has their different demands. So you're not everybody's cup of tea regardless. But my um, outlook on it was, you know, I'd, I had a fair, people, a fair few people asking me to come and work for them, with them, you know, when I was at the back end of my career. Yeah, and I thought to myself, I I know the playing side of it. I've got a hell of a lot of contacts. Um, my my generation of people will start coming to the end, so they'd be going into the coaching roles and the managerial roles and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and with with my experiences, and I say good, bad, and indifferent because they're not all good. Mm. Um, you feel like you've got you've got a lot to offer, 
Well, at first, I didn't want to be an agent. I was like, absolutely no chance. And that's because mm. of the stigma attached to it. You know, it's, it's got a bad, I think agents in any industry, in property, if you're an estate agent, it's like, oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. You put agent next to it, unless you're James Bond, it's something very different. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, people, yeah, don't, people don't rate you. So I thought, I was like that. I thought, maybe, maybe not. Um, and I looked at, looked at it for a while. But whilst I was doing that, I thought, how about I look at football from a sort of 360 point of view? Mm. So go and do my badges. Do I want to coach? Do I want to manage? Um, because there are obviously uh, avenues you can go down. Yeah. So I thought, I learned a lot by doing my badges, whether I use that every day or not, by getting on the grass is something different, but I learned a lot. Um, and then obviously in the media, at the very beginning, I was, um, you know, I was new to it all so seeing it from the coach's point of view having been a player seeing it from that point of view then seeing it from the media's point of view and now seeing it with an agent's hat on i can see a lot of angles that i never saw before you know right. as, a, as a player i realize um why things happened more so in my career that you think you're in control of where you're not and yeah. and i just i just re i see the bigger picture now that the machine that works a lot faster than any one little one little um peace within it and that's all we are at the end of the day so football's a huge machine that, that works and within that you're trying to keep the human element because that's all that's the, that's what is actually the glue that keeps it all together mm. um, but there are so many working parts to it and the money that's coming to the game now is immense and it just yeah. it's trying to keep people with the correct focus um, and realizing as Sir Alex used to say to me listen money's a byproduct of you doing a good job don't focus on the money, focus on doing a good job and money comes as a result of that. And I think that gets lost often, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah it definitely does. And you made some good points there. I mean, so in terms of when I think of agents, I just think of them like buzzing around like on the motorway and at training grounds and watching games. So like, I'm assuming that's kind of still the case. What, what is your like day-to-day -day life? Like if you want to just talk us through your average day. Yeah, I mean, no, no two days are the same, but you have to, you have to be at games. You know, that's important. You know, if you're committing to lads and you're sort of um, saying you're going to help them with their, with their development or, you know, feedback and that kind of thing, yes, you can't get to every game that everybody's playing in, but you have to share your time around. You have to be able to, to watch games. The other games, you have scouts that will give you the feedback. And it's actually nice sometimes to get other people's feedback. But, you know, you, you spend a lot of time on the phone, you know, a lot of gaining clubs, um, speaking to clubs, what they need, what are they, you know, what they don't need, what's the, the position of your player within that football club, because it always changes. Yeah. And you know, just make, making sure that you're on top of everything, that alongside making sure that the, the legal side, the financial side, um, the support side, the mental health side, and everything that the player needs are in place. You know, whether you have that in-house or you partner with other companies um, to make sure you've got the, the best practice. Um, so it, it, it's my day varies I could wake up one day take the kids to school I've got four kids amidst all of this wow. uh, you also take the kids to school and then it's try and fit in some form of gym but while you're doing it you've got your earpods your earpods in and you, <laughs> you speak on the phone at times and yeah. uh, you know, you're always on the go I think my, my missus is, is spewing a lot of the time because <laughs> so random it was so yeah. random the whole, that it's not just like okay five o'clock comes and you shut off so that's that's a that's a my typical days random but i try and get to a number of games a week where i can number of meetings and as you say it requires a lot of miles and um, that's not just in 
in the UK, it's, you have to fly to places, you have to be around Europe to different clubs because okay. it's all positively. Yeah. And I do, you know, amidst all that, I do a lot of stuff in, in Colombia. So I go to Colombia, um, work with uh, an agency over there who basically navigate the Colombian market because it's, it's yeah. a very different market to the UK and help young players over there with education and then bringing them out, bringing them to Europe to give them a platform because the Colombian market is, um, there's some good raw talent, but there's not as much structure as there is in Europe. And sometimes if the boys miss, miss the, the key development years, I'm talking your late teens to you know, you're at that kind of time, where you're sort of 16 to 20, they can miss an opportunity where they might have had an opportunity before. So I think oh. I, I work um, a, a partner with a, with a company over there, Pro Bowl Group, who are very good. So it's a, it's a mixed bag. And, and on top of that, as you say, we, as a group, we, we do some property stuff, as you said there. So that would include um, land, getting involved with land, planning permission, you know, and that kind of thing. So a mixed bag. I love being yeah. busy. I think from the moment <laughs> my head, I'm, I'm active and the moment I go to bed, um, I try to switch off. But yeah. you know, if I wake up in the middle of the night, something comes into my head and I'm researching it or looking at it on my iPad or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I'm conscious from the player's point of view that I make sure um, I'm attentive and, and they get what they need out of it. And everybody's different. Some people want a lot, some people want very little. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all case. And I don't want to look after... 30, 40 players, it's not in my remit and it's not. It's just not what I want to do. Um, but the ones that I do I do look after, I want to make sure that they get everything from me and I'm available to them. So I'm always at the end of a phone if need be or a drive away from them to, to come and help them out. That's massive. Uh, I think it's safe to say you've got your fingers in a lot of pies there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think, I think you, the key to it is working with good people, Danny. Yeah. I think you, you can't do everything yourself. You really yeah. can't. My focus is the players and the agency 99% of the time. Mm. Um, and then at the media side of it as well, I enjoy and I, I focus you know, on, on, that, on that to a certain extent. But the rest of it is having good people around you, making sure that you've got structures in place and other, other mm. people to, to partner with. Them, that you, you know, a big thing for me is trust. The people you trust to go out and do, do the work and then you can help put the pieces together at mm. times. But you know, it's not my, my, my day-to-day is making sure the players are sorted out. Mm. You mentioned there that you didn't want to have like a whole bunch of players to look after. So is it just a handful that you're looking after at the moment? That's right, yeah. A handful and then I'd, I'd help football clubs as well. So there's times where clubs need, especially during COVID where people are laying people off and we don't have the extended sort of um, recruitment team or mm. you know, certain clubs don't have that kind of budget or just don't know an area. Mm. So where you may be stronger or may be able to identify players mm. is where we where we come into where we come into play as well. So we can be an extended scouting network for, for clubs, um, you know, offer scouting reports, do advice, you know, give them advice and so on. And mm. the no no two clubs recruit the same. So everybody requires something different. We're, we're very active on the likes of Instat and Y Scout as well. So we have analysts that look at look at players and analyze and break it down because that's a big part of the game going forward. Yeah. And, and like I say, I personally can't do the lot, but the team I have around me are very, very good. Good stuff. Um, and you mentioned there you work for MUTV, do some BBC work and Sky as well. So how have you found things kind of seeing things from a different perspective? You touched on it a little bit at the top of the show, but 
I want you to go in more detail in terms of seeing things from behind the screen. Because I was speaking yeah. to um, David Gower um, on a previous podcast, and he was mentioning when he was working for Sky, he was kind of astonished, uh, amazed like, by how many people are actually behind the camera to make a show just appear like, like normal on TV for the viewer mm -hmm. at home. Um, so how is that for you? How was that experience? I think um, that would be the most difficult one. I think you, 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 you're great until you hear, right, the, you know, 60 seconds till on air or something like that. <laughs> you think, right, everybody's watching. Even though someone might be watching, but you think you see all these things start to go through your head, but you've got a game face it and you, your heart might be beating, you might be sweating in the first one or two that you do, but you've got <laughs> to just be calm. Yeah. But I think the moment, the, you know, the moment you go into it, Mm. You drop the nerves, you talk about football like you would with your mates, and mm. that's the way, the way I view it. Mm. I think um, one, one of the things I always try and try and do is put myself out of my comfort zone. Mm. You know, it's that feeling, I'm very familiar with it now, where you, you're stretched and your natural reaction is just to pull back in and go, I'm not doing it. Do you know what I mean? I don't want it. Yeah. But I know, I know that's the point where you've got to go through with something. You know mm. what I mean? So... That's that's what I do, and you know what? You make mistakes and you learn from them. You you know I, I did the first time I did co commentary. Um, I got dogs abuse on I got dogs abuse on Twitter on Twitter. Did from, you? From, yeah, abroad abroad because it went out abroad. So I was okay. getting people going, who's this guy? Is his mank tones are not you know what? No one wants to listen to mank tones. No one wants yeah. to listen to this. Um, wow. And because you, you tell people's nerves coming through, and I was nervous, so yeah. I was sort of. Not knowing when to come in, not knowing when to come out. Um, I know I, you know, I don't think any of us say some people master it if that's what you do day in day out. But mm. it's a very difficult skill. So you're doing it on the radio, and then you're doing it on the TV, and both are very different as well. So yeah. all the time you're learning, you you end up sometimes copying what the commentator says. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you go to the break and he'll say, "Well, I describe it." Sorry, I'll I'll say what's happening. You describe why, and you're like, "Okay." And, and it's all the different detail that you, you need to know. But I think we, we, we have a unique set, not a unique, we have a set of skills that are transitionable from mm. football over to any other industry. Or, and, and I think one of the biggest things we have is being able to handle pressure mm. and being able to you know, put yourself into something and back yourself and trust yourself. And you've yeah. already played in front of so many people where you've made many mistakes. Mm. So what's the worst that can happen? You go out, you make a mistake. You don't get the role. You yeah. go out, you make, you do even better. You get the role, you learn. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm one. I always want critical feedback. And I think coming from a football background in a, in a dressing room from 20 years ago, yeah. where people directly to your face, what they think in no yeah. uncertain. Time, <laughs> there's, there's no grey area. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've asked for that sometimes when I first started doing TV, and the first, I remember I said it to somebody at BBC, and they went, "Oh no, no, no. There's no." Um, we won't, we won't, there's no, crit no criticism here, it's just positive feedback. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's fine. Fair enough. People saying, that's rubbish, in worse words than that. Not mm. having it, don't fix up, then you're out or you're off or whatever it may be. And it was mm. as brutal as work it out very quickly. So, yeah, I just think I'm, I'm, I've got an ability to deal with, deal with pressure, think on my feet. Mm. Um, trust, I trust my decisions, which is uh, always something that um, I think if you don't, I'd prefer, to, I'd prefer to get through something, trust where I've gone and it go wrong and sit in a grey area and nothing ever happened because you can always rectify it go wrong. But you've mm. got to be prepared to sort of have egg on your face and 
and then be bold enough and have you know broad shoulders enough to to go again really and I think anything you do on social media on TV media or radio you're, you're putting yourself out to criticism this what we're doing now some people yeah. are listening and go hate that what's he doing yeah. how does he know he's never played here and why should he do that and all that yeah. kind of thing and Oh, what such is life I don't, I don't lose any sleep over it yeah that's exactly my train of thought as well I've said many times before like I mean to be honest I'm lucky I've had some decent feedback uh, from more or less mm. everyone who's kind of seen the shows which is great yeah. but I take it with a pinch of salt because you know yourself you obviously back yourself like you said and that's that's what we've always been told as, as footballers anyway you have to back yourself before anyone else even thinks about backing you so for me, I know my message is a strong one, something I'm passionate about, and hence why I'm doing the podcast. But if someone was to come and say, mate, I don't like the way you come across, or I didn't like that guest, or I don't believe in what you're saying, or what's the point in doing it? It's not mm. going to deter me from what I'm doing. It's not going to like discourage me. I'm going to continue doing it. Um, yeah. So it's a good point you make. Um, in terms of kind of your career, so obviously, as I mentioned, we'll speak about that. And you did play at a high level, um, great player as well. Um, in terms of like your transition from playing football week in, week out, day in, day out, from the age of probably six or seven um, yeah. up until retirement, how, how did you find your transition? Because obviously you were playing football and then now you're doing kind of three or four different things, still involved in sport, but from the other side. Yeah. So how was your transition away from, from football to doing what you're doing now? Um, I think it was, it's not an easy transition, but I came to terms with probably in my late 20s that I wasn't as good as, I knew I was always a realist, I think, and I, that wasn't where I ever, where I could be anymore. Mm. And I think in, injuries are some of the best things that could have happened to me um, with that. Um, the disappointment you face when you're injured and the time you have to think, I did my cruciate at Portsmouth mm. and... I remember sitting there often in the gym thinking, you know, even when I came back, you're not where you need to be. Your head's doing it. Your body's not doing it. Mm. So what's your next chapter? You know, where do you go? You're 30 years old. You're 29, 30 years old. Where do you go? What do you do? So I started to look at other things then. I started to look at football as a whole. And I thought, when you're a footballer, you live in this bubble of you get paid lots of money. Um, your peers are paid a lot of money. You do things accordingly and I thought to myself well in the world we live in who who pays our wages the club mm. who owns the football club whoever it may be mm. how they earn their money you know if you want to continue a certain lifestyle or you want to be in, involved in earning again down the line you know how they earn their money because we we as footballers even the top footballers you think it, if you gave Man City as an example now um, you know the owners far outweigh any form of money that any of the players can earn. Yet the, what, what the, any of the players earn far outweighs what every man on the street earns, if you get what I mean. So there's levels to the whole thing. And um, I, looked, I just looked at football. I took a step back and I had an injury after I left Portsmouth for, for missed most of the year. Mm. And I sat back and looked at it all. I realised that my phone stopped ringing with a lot of people. Mm. And you go, okay, I see that. You're hot and people don't ring in. I knew it was the case because people had always said it. But the reality of it is, oh, right, okay. Yeah. Then when you get football, your phone starts to ring again. And you go, okay, I see you. Um, but I think it's not to get, take it personal. It's just you're in the industry or you're not. You know, it is what yeah. it is, you're in the game. So 
I took my injuries took me to a place where I was about 30 where I thought right, I've got to educate myself you know I'm not stupid I, but I've not I've not I've been in this bubble from 10 years old if you like so where the rest of the world has an advantage on me is they've left school at 16 maybe gone to uni experienced the real world and how to earn money in the real world and how to be successful in the real world we don't have that yeah. so how do I get involved in that um, so that my transition is as smooth as it can be. So having injuries made me start, you know, I, I joined LinkedIn about 2010 for argument's sake. Um, mm. I was 28, 29, didn't know what it was. Just started exploring it and looking at what it is and speaking to people in different networks, trying to put deals together, trying to understand what people wanted. What And, and I asked questions and there's probably people on LinkedIn who, throughout the years who thought, oh, I spoke to him 10 years ago and, he didn't have a clue what he was talking about, but yeah. that's all. Didn't I was I was I was a in effect an eighteen year old lad, but I was actually thirty. And yeah. um, I, by virtue of my network not being in, you know, step out of football, and I'm I'm still a young lad again. Yeah. So I had to be prepared to do the the years, and and you know, football is football is one of those things. I think if you people don't look at the years and the sacrifice you put in to become a first team just to make your debut. That's it. Yeah. yeah. People look at you, make your debut, and he go, oh, flipping it, he left school and made his debut, and then he's yeah, made exactly, it. Yeah. Oh, but, and I think most industries are the same. The successful people mm. um, don't just walk out and just go, I'm going to do that, and I'm a multimillionaire the next week. It just doesn't, it doesn't work like that, unless you fall lucky on something, you know. Mm. Um, but rarely does that happen. So I realise that whatever you want to do, you've got to put your, your mileage in. You've got to be successful. You've got to learn. You've got to be willing to be wrong. Um, and that was a thing of mine, you know, you're always right in your head, like, no, I'm right, but yeah. you're not. And be willing to accept that there are points of view that um, differ from your own and you can learn from it. And there's a lot of self-development that, that went on. I listened to a lot of podcasts. I listened to a lot of your Tony Robbins, people like that. And he yeah. gave me a different perspective and just tried to educate myself and taking as much information as I could while still moving forward. And then... I tried to get involved in the media at the beginning and I got people, oh, sorry, your profile's not big enough. We've got this man and that man. And I'm like, listen, I'm not trying to be the, the pundit on BT Sport every Saturday afternoon. I said, you know, I understand my profile. I'm a realist. My profile isn't that. Mm. I'm just, wanna, I just want to learn the game. And people are like, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. All right, no thanks. Until certain people went, well, just come and have a look on this one show. Come and do this for free on the radio. And I was like, yeah, come on, let's do it. So I did a lot of free work at yeah. the beginning just to experience it you know um local radio and relative to the football clubs that i was i'd played for yeah. um just to cut my teeth and understand what i was getting into mm. and then over time you know i did more and more and you know became a little bit less wooden you know what i mean because <laughs> i was wooden and trying to get everything perfect and yeah speak in a way that i didn't speak you know mm. it's like you're trying to get every word perfect and it's not who i am it's not yeah. who i am um, I realise that your content, your content, and if people like it, you do, and you're going to rub some people the wrong way. You just can't please everybody. Mm. That's just life. So, I think, and also one of the best things that happened to me was playing for Salford. Um, you know, joined Salford. It was a sheer chance that I, um, I was in in the ground on the day that I ended up getting asked to play. And really? yeah, well, again, I was learning the media. I'd done pre-season at Walsall, and I'd left Accrington. Done pre-season at Walsall. Still hanging on, thinking I could play higher and all that. My head was telling me, <laughs> yes, he's going, stop it, Webs. Stop it. Yeah. 
Um, I did pre-season under Dean Smith and Richard O'Kelly, obviously Villa assistant yeah. and manager. And um, I thought they were brilliant. The both of them, I thought they were exceptional. I really did. It was refreshing to be in, in their environment, the way they gave the, the responsibility to the players. Mm. And I really thought they were, they were good. So I did pre-season, played a few games, couldn't hit the back of the net. That was the reality of it. I just And Dean Smith pulled me on the day and said, look, you know what, Webbs, you've, you've done great. You've been great around the place, but I can't justify signing a striker that's not scored a goal pre-season. I said, you know what? He banged on, shook his hand and walked away and said, thanks very much. Drove back up the M6 to Manchester. And that night I'd been asked to do, I'd done a few things for Radio Manchester. So I got asked to do um, a co-commentary for Salford versus, so the Salford team that the Class of 92 had built. Mm. So they put a team together that summer. Versus, and they did a curtain raiser, sort of the class of 92 and friends, like Jack Whitehall, Michael Vaughan, um, Robbie Savage, and a few in the class of 92 and a few others. Yeah. Uh, and they played against the Salford team that they just put together that summer. Okay. So I did the radio commentary for Manchester Radio Manchester on it. It was like a fun game, which filled out a stadium. It stopped the traffic. Mm. The place. It filled out the whole place. Wow. But I think that was, you know, to go and see Scalzi play and things like that again. There's a lot of a lot of emotion attached to it, quite mm. rightly so. So I did halftime, I came down and I literally went to go and get a cup of tea. And I saw the dressing room door open, you had to walk past the dressing room at the AJ Bell Stadium and it was Gary, Giggsy and me. They were like, what's what are you doing? Mm. I'm just doing the commentary. They went, forget the commentary, we come and play for us in the second half, we need some legs. Yeah. So, and just by chance, I left Walsall that day, so I had all the boots in the car. So I went to the car, grabbed a pair of boots, and then went out, warmed up, played probably the last 20 minutes of the game. Mm. But um, obviously, I'd done pre-season at Walsall. I was in decent nick, or mm. decent enough. And then in the dressing room afterwards, it was Gary and Scholes who just turned around and said, Webbs, would you play for Salford? And you're battling with your, your own ego at that time. And that's, that's a big problem for a lot, a lot of people. And I was thinking, oh my God, eighth tier of English football. Is that where I am? You know, I'm, I'm struggling <laughs> And I said, I don't know, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. And he said, well, what were you earning at Accrington? And I said, listen, it's not about the money. And they said, oh, we know that, you know, come and have a look. I said, all right, fine. Next morning, Gary was on me straight away. And he said, look, would you come to Salford? I said, you know what, I'll come and have a look. He said, come to training. If you hate it, you know, just walk away, no problem. But just come and have a look. I think you'll like it. Mm. We're trying to do it the right way. We want to get the club in the right place. And we need, you know, I think we could, you'd really help us. Mm. So I did. I went Tuesday night training, turned up in my kit, protein shake, water, ready to go. Some of the lads um, had been at work all day because it's part-time now, you know, as you say. Yeah. You know, they'd been at work all day and one or two had entertained clients, smelling of booze. But the lads were brilliant. They were great. And I saw how Phil Neville turned up at training, took the session. And I thought, there's something here that they really, you know, look at the lads and I know how driven they all are. Um, there's something here and I yeah, quite enjoyed that so there was a game on the Saturday and he said listen play I didn't have a contract or anything I said play walk away when you're ready got a couple of games in and I scored a few goals and I was enjoying it and I said you know what I'll sign a contract so we, you know, we sat down we agreed, it, agreed a contract till the end of the season mm. and then we got promoted the first year and I thought I love it but what I, what I loved is obviously it was enabled me to wean myself off being full time because you're only yeah. training twice the days in between, I could I could learn, I could work, I could go to do bits of media for nothing, and mm. you know just learn basically. But I could still have my fix of what my job is, which is football. Do you yeah. know what I mean? 
So I did that. And then well, I remember my, one of my first games for Salford. And I remember the, the fans were there right next to you, you know, with corners there and the throw-ins or whatever, and they're right there and you're giving you stick. Um, and I thought, I like this. And yeah. at that point, I realised what a disconnect there was at the top of the game to, to the fans and to the, to the average guy on the street to what there was at Salford. And I thought, that's me, that. You know, I'm, I'm, that's me, that's what I'm from. I'm, I'm a normal guy who would stand there and watch a game of football and it really resonated with me. And I think from that point, I just said, yeah, let's sign and I'll, and I'll crack on. So I did. Um, so my transition was gradual, but I learned while I went to part-time. And then it's funny because I had a lot of people ask me, what, what's part-time football like? It's almost like you have to break, break the duck a little bit for someone to want to do it, even though they might have wanted to do it in the first place. Yeah, yeah. You know? So yeah, that was sorry. That was so. That was that was it. I kind of went from there, yeah. and, I, and I, felt I wanted to end it on my terms. We got two promotions in two years. Mm. Um, I was asked to stay, and I just thought, you know what? I know my body's right now. I was lasting about an hour in the game, and then I'd blow up. Literally, just hit the wind machine. I'm running into really? the Nah, I understand. I mean, I remember watching uh, the documentary on TV. I actually watched it with my wife. Uh, and, and she doesn't even like football, but she was just intrigued by the whole kind of how it came about and the people at the top and the players and stuff like that. So I remember watching it and seeing you on there. And obviously, um, for me, it always seemed like, obviously, we know about skulls and, and kind of gigs and all those kind of the class yeah. night too and how good they were. But they came across really professional and that resonated to the players and on the pitch. And it seemed like a real team ethic and everyone was kind of in it together. I had that feel about it. Um, and I mean, I've worked in, I played for some teams kind of within that kind of situation and it's like mm -hmm. a team effort from the top to the bottom. And normally when it, when you're in a situation like that, as a team, you, you tend to perform better because you want to do well for the manager, you want to do well for chairman, your teammates and things like that. So I'm assuming it was pretty much the same at, at Salford. Yeah, it was. There's, there's no, what I liked about it, it was... There was no barriers between any layer of the football club. So you'd have the chairwoman, Karen Baird, who's been ever-present still to this day. Gary would be at games or Scholes or Phil or, you know, whoever would be at games. Gigs would come down to games. Uh, Nicky Butt as well. Mm. And they just got the coats on and watched the game normally, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't think they expected it to the football to go as quick as it did and gain the, they got five promotions in four years. So I think the but then off the pitch caught up very quickly because they're, they're driven people. But mm. it was, there were great people at the football club that are still there to this day. You know, the groundsman, the, the Andy Giblin, the, sec, the uh, club secretary. Um, I, could name, I could name loads and they, they'd know who they are. Um, and I just got them. It's a real homely feel. Um, mm. So for transitioning out the game and, you know, stepping away slowly from what, what you love, it couldn't yeah. have been a, a better way to do it for me. Definitely. Mm. You mentioned there, obviously, so you kind of, the main reason why you retired from football was through injury and you had like a few injuries at the back end of your career. Um, obviously, you mentioned how you kind of evolved into a pundit and coach and obviously you're involved in being an agent as well. At that time when you were kind of moving away from football, you're at Salford and you come into the latter stage of your contract and you're thinking, right, I'm ready now. Did you get any help? Because you mentioned like you joined LinkedIn and obviously it's all about networking and everything else, which is 100% true. Um, but did you get any help kind of from 
previous managers, any organisations or previous players that you played with who have maybe made the transition? Did you look look to anyone for any help or did anyone kind of reach out? We've all been there. You mentioned before that the phone stopped ringing when you weren't playing and obviously when you started again, it started ringing and that's generally what happens nine times out of ten for most players anyway. Um, but did you actually, did you get any help? Um, not necessarily, not from, not, not from players. I mean, I think by virtue of me reaching out to people, some people were more helpful than others. Mm. You know, there were people, um, I won't say the name because I'd embarrass them. They were good, you know, good people like even at, even at Man United who helped me out. Mm. Um, and I've, I've told them that since, you know, I was grateful for the help that they gave me at key times where they probably didn't think they did much, but they did. And, mm. um, you know, that, Radio Manchester were very good. You know, Sarah Collins at Radio Manchester was excellent. Um, she's at Talk Sport now, but she was excellent. Bill Rice at Radio Manchester helped me so much with my... Um, yeah, he did a lot of radio comms with me. He gave me a lot of pointers. Was, mm. was, yeah, just gave me a lot of guidelines. You know, he was great. MUTV were brilliant. Um, just the, the, there was a few in, in that that helped me out. Then in the agency side of things, it was great because... I had good people, I knew a lot of people in the game, one or two, like Paolo Vanazza. Um, yeah. you know, Paolo's very good at his job. Um, so I, I joined with Paolo and Paolo sort of, you know, showed me where he was going and what he was doing and how it worked. Mm. Um, so I think you, I just thought whichever direction I want to go, I need to align myself with good people. Mm. And I think one of the key points I will say is the help is there, but you have to ask, you know, you have willing to step up and ask and feel inferior and feel like you don't know anything feel like you're the new boy in school and go mm. don't know me put your hand up and ask mm. um i'm not saying i'm not saying that there is a group at this moment in time that help every player that transitions out of football there's not but i think we have the tools available to us when we're transitioning out of the game not to sit back and rest on our laurels and look at our loss mm. more what can we gain and how can we learn and I think if you adopt that approach, you'll be able to transition out and find where you sit. You will spend a couple of years off balance. I think yeah. that's, that's natural. It's natural because it's new. It's new and you, have, you, you second guess whether you've made the right decision to do this and, and do that. Um, but by making a decision, you get to where, get to where you need to be because you can always change direction. But I think... The problem a lot of people face is the indecisiveness of not knowing what to do. So you sit in that not knowing. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of friends that have done the same thing and they go, well, what, what am I going to do? Go, you know, try, just try something. What are you passionate about? Well, you know, what are you passionate about? What do you enjoy? What have you ever been intrigued about? What do you like? You know, go, go and do something. If you, if you like property, well, go and do something in property. By virtue of being in the mix, Go and do a property course. You might meet somebody on a property course who says, I like you. You've got contacts that you don't know about just yet. Um, I'll mentor you. And when we're at a stage and you exercise, you, you know, your contacts. Okay. You've learned. You've done something you're passionate about. Mm. And then all of a sudden. But what people, I think, expect is to finish earning thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds a week, walk into something that's going to pay you exactly the same. But <laughs> you're not up in that area to yeah. be earning that money and there's very few players um that have the profile you know the your rios and people like that and that level of player that can just walk into tv and earn millions on a you know yeah. and, and have a 
an operation in place that continues to, to make money for them. It's, it's just not, it's just not the case. You've either got to be bold enough to do it yourself or find the people around you and ask them for your, for your help. Because people, people are okay to help. But you find sometimes people are semi-intimidated by you. So they don't offer the help. Yeah. So you actually drop your barriers and say, you know what, is it, can you help me with that? You know, be willing to look stupid because you'll yeah. find you know, know more and you pick up more by, by dropping your barriers. Mm, some good points, great insight. And I kind of agree with everything you said there. I always say, look, if you don't ask, the answer's always going to be no. Um, yeah. Sometimes as a player, you don't realise how big your network is. Even if you play like at the lower leagues, you've still got a network of people that you can call upon, people that you've come yeah. across or played against. So again, you've mentioned LinkedIn and that's massive. Someone a lot older than me told me a couple of years ago, well, a few years ago, like join LinkedIn. And I'm late on the scene of social media. And I know LinkedIn is kind of different from Instagram and things like that, but it's still a social media platform, essentially. And I was reluctant because I thought, well, I've got a job. I don't really need to go on LinkedIn. Um, I wasn't on Instagram or Facebook. And I've only just joined Instagram and Facebook kind of the last few months since I've been doing a podcast. Yeah. I'm kind of a private person, but something like a podcast, you need to be out there. People want to see your face. And I know what it's like. It, when you're speaking to people with like a profile like yourself or whatever, obviously we know each other. I mean, yeah. we'll touch on that. But people, if they don't know you, they probably won't trust you anyway, especially footballers. They always have their guard up to a certain degree because someone's always trying to sell you something. And that's yeah. just how it is. So for me, yeah. when I get someone on the show, and people say, oh, like, how did you get Danny Weber on? Or how did you get David Garr on? It's like, well, I just asked. For every person yeah. I get on, there's probably 20 that haven't responded to me. That's yeah, just how yeah. it is. So people are busy. You're busy. Doesn't mean you're ignoring me. You're just busy. That's just mm -hmm. how it is. So for anyone listening out there, it's about asking the question. Like you said, don't be scared to put yourself out there because no one's really going to come out and reach out to you unless you've got a profile, which is attractable to them anyway. If yeah. you're someone who's just played football, no one really cares. It, it's, it's a talking point in the bar, and, and that's basically it. Unless you're Rio Ferdinand or, or Beckham or gigs or someone like that it's not really going to be given to you on a plate and even then i mean these players not all of them have been given the opportunity um, and some of them have tried and, and failed or whatever and it, it may not suit them but it, when you've got a platform it's slightly easier as you know um, yeah. you've obviously come across people who have got a major platform and you play with kind of some of the most high profile players in the world um but yeah i mean just well, i want to touch on your career um, so we first met kind of what, 14, 15 years of age. And um, for the listeners out there, FA National School, which is now defunct, um, basically it's like a massive, I don't know, Edwardian building in Shropshire. And that's where we used to kind of board, uh, essentially the best kind of 15, 16 players in the country uh, between the ages of 14 and 16. Two age groups, so you have seniors, juniors, and obviously when I was there, I was a senior and you were my, my junior. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, for me, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I know it's probably not the same for everyone else. Uh, I spoke to Reese the other day and Stuart Taylor and um, spoke to people in the past and kind of, you know, it's like you move away from home at the age of 14, really, really young. I mean, my daughter's 11, so a few years after that, I would have been leaving home. And I look at her and I think, how did I even like contemplate doing it? But I didn't really think twice. Um, mm -hmm. How did you find your experience? Because obviously, I mentioned leaving home, 
new teammates, new surroundings, different part of the country, playing and training kind of week in, sorry, day in, day out. What was it like for you? I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. We had a great group of lads and yeah. I think we, yeah, that helps if your surroundings and the people that you spend your time with are decent. Mm. But no, I loved it. I, was, I would have done anything for football. You know, so if somebody would have said to me, you're going to the back end of Russia and you're going to live there for two years, I'd have done it. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's how it was. So to think that you're playing with, at that moment in time, the best 16-stroke 32 players in the country, day in, day out, was only ever going to improve, improve me as a player. Mm. I learned a lot about myself. You go from inner city Manchester where you're, you're, you're cocky and you've got a lot to say for yourself and you're, yeah. you're then stuck into rural Shropshire. You're like, wow going on here yeah, yeah. Um, you know as you say we went to the local school that um we were liked by the women and not by the men do you know what yeah. i mean so we had a bit of conflict there so you you know you realize that your your teammates your brothers and you got you've got to back each other when it when it's needed so you learn a lot about yourself you can't just go home to your mum and your dad and ask them and say oh this happened because they're not there you know so you know what it's like sitting on the corridor we didn't have mobiles most of the lads at that until maybe late on and mm. um, we're sitting on the payphone, we're waiting, you check the payphone for, you know, flipping yeah. payphone. So even contact to get home wasn't as, as frequent. I mean, we used to get mail, you'd, you'd, you'd have almost, um, you'd have to write letters to people and people would write letters to you and you'd be buzzing to get a bit of mail. So <laughs> it was, yeah, it's mad, but it's, it's, that's, how, that's how it was. But I enjoyed it because the football was good and the lads were very good. Yeah. Um, and it gave, gave me a focus and I was already... Um, used to changing schools and I'd been to five primary schools and so it was quite quite normal to me to just jump into another school and, and be like that. The thing I found hard was joining a group of lads, all came from different backgrounds and I saw that some of my brash, brash sort of Mancunian way was a bit too much for certain lads and it's funny, it was just because I was gobby, you're gobby, yeah. I don't know if you, I was, I was, I'd always give it a little bit so um I've found that even some of my own teammates, like I'd stay up at, at night with Leon, Leon Mike, you know, yeah. we went to his room and played play computer, but we'd have uh, Nobs was in that room, Nobs was fine. But then there was like Chris McCready, who's now works at Man United. Oh, yeah. uh, and Maka was very studious, um, amazing guy, but very studious. And I think I just rubbed him up the wrong way for the first bit. He does go, Webs, are you going to go to bed now? And I'd be like, no, I'm playing computer. And I didn't... <laughs> I was just in my world and I didn't consider, you know, didn't yeah, consider, yeah. but I learned very quickly when, you know, when, you, when you're in the group, how to, how to find your balance again, I think. So, yeah, I loved it. Absolutely yeah. loved it. And I, to be honest, I, I think um, for me, it was way ahead of its time because we were training mm -hmm. every day, as you mentioned. So the best players in the country, essentially. Um, Keith Blunt was a coach, great yeah. coach, um, hard taskmaster, but I learned so much when I was there. And, for me, it was, I don't know if it was the same for you, but in my area, kind of Midlands, Warwickshire and kind of surrounding areas, you always classed as like the best or one of the best and never really had any issues kind of getting in the team and scoring. I used mm -hmm. to be a striker until I went to Lillyshaw and I got stuck out on the left um, yeah. just because we had Francis Jeffers, Alan Smith up front, uh, Paul Weepoff, so ridiculous talent. Um, so for me, when I went there and I realised, look, there's a, there's a different level here. Because um, I just used to rely on my pace. I didn't really have much game understanding. I could finish, could run past players. I was skillful, technical. But when I went there and I realised there was like a different level, we had Scott Parker, who was 
pure yeah. technique, technical player. Game understanding was ridiculous. A lot bigger players. I mean, me and you were small anyway, and obviously you were a year below me anyway. But in terms of me, I mean, Stuart Taylor, if you remember, he was like grown men, like six foot three. Yeah. It's just yeah. like, and obviously the goalkeeper, and we had like Matthew Gent, who was like a man, again, Lee Cannaville, again, over six foot. So a lot of the players were a lot bigger than me, and I was always used to playing against bigger players anyway, because I've always been small. Um, but it was just the level of understanding and realising kind of, okay, well, we're training after school, so we've got to go to school, come home, train every day, and then play. But for me, the most enjoyable part was always playing, because we were so good that we were so confident without being cocky. And every game we played, we just knew we were either going to win or, or come away with kind of, a situation where we should have won but we didn't because it was mm. just so good yeah. and I remember your year was a really good year and obviously you yeah. had Joe Cole and people like yourself and Leon Mike Clarkey Torpy Armstrong so you had a you had a so that's just to name a few you had a really good team um, but yeah so then obviously you leave Ligashaw and then you start your apprentice at, uh, as an apprentice at Man United so what was it like working with kind of Alex Ferguson on a daily basis? Obviously, in the youth team, you wouldn't have been in contact with him that much, but just seeing and being in his presence and knowing that you're kind of you're playing for what the biggest club in the world, essentially. What was it like to obviously pull on the shirt and, and train every day? I think he set the tone for the whole football club. So he set the standard, he set the culture. So even if you're not working with him day in, day out as a 16, 17-year-old, you were held to his standard by the coaches that were around him. And I, and I still think the best coach I ever had um, day in, day out was Neil Bailey. He was my under-17s, under, under 17s, as it was then, coach. Mm. Um, still speaking to this day, he's a, he's a legend. Straight talking, knew what he wanted from you, helped you improve, demanded from you every single day. Um, but for me, my transition into, into that was so smooth because we finished Lily Shaw we come straight off the back of going to a tournament in the States and we were just into pre-season. So I found pre-season quite easy, mm. whereas other lads finished school and really struggled with pre-season, but we'd already had a level of fitness. So I think the first year I found it quite easy and I scored about 17 goals in my first 12 games. Mm. Um, and I was flying and then I got injured, um, which was the story of a lot of my, a lot of my career. But mm. working, under, working under Sir Alex, he'd always keep you in check. One of the only people that ever would walk into a room and it would just silence a room no matter how big the characters were in the room mm. he just pushed the place not even trying to but just his mere presence would do that yeah um, little things like you know we had to do jobs back then so obviously the young lads don't have to do them anymore we had jobs around the place cleaning and cleaning boots and washing balls and cleaning the gym and showers and all that sort of stuff mm. And he always maintained that, you know, you do your jobs to such a high standard. And I remember he used to go in the gym. He'd go, right, three of you come with me. And he'd take you into the gym at the cliff once in a while. And he'd pull the heaviest machine out and then do that. And if there was any dust on it, he'd be fuming. He'd say, right, get in there and clean the whole thing. Knowing full well that you, no two lads could ever lift that machine by themselves. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a lesson about standards and, you yeah. know, disciplines and making sure that you did, think, did things right. Mm. So... It couldn't, I couldn't have had a better upbringing if, if I'm honest. Whether I was to go on and play 300 games or three games for Man United, um, my upbringing really helped me. 
at that football club to to go on and have have any form of career, mm. um, and and even to the point where twice in my career I needed help, I knocked on his door and he was like, "Yeah, listen, come in. This is your this is your home. I'll tell everybody you're here, and you know you're going to use that. That I'll tell the physios you need them. I'll tell the, the you know whoever it is you're training, yeah. get yourself back, and we'll get you up and running again." So I've, I'm I'm forever grateful to to Sir Alex for. His standard setting, his disciplines, um, his teachings to me um, as, a, as an individual, and um, obviously his humility and his his openness to let me come in at certain times and and you know re- rebuild when you you're going through a bit of a crap time in the in the middle of your career. Yeah, and obviously, so when you were there talking kind of what, 1999, 2000, 2001, obviously gigs, Beckham, Scholes, Nicky Butt. Wes Brown, players like that, kind of, I'm assuming, so when you were there, I'm assuming you, you trained with the first team at some point. Um, yeah. what, what was it like to train with them and just raising your game and just thinking, because obviously as players, sometimes you don't, well, me certainly, when I was playing and playing with kind of, at Leicester say, Emil Heskey and Robbie Savage and people like that, you don't appreciate your surroundings. So without being arrogant, you just used to being in that surrounding. So when you're training with them, it's kind of, okay, well, they're my teammates or, they're in the first team and I'm in the reserves, but I'm training with them today. You don't, it's not until you kind of retire and like someone will ask you the question, oh, what was it like to train with them? And then you realize actually it was, it was quite tough or I really enjoyable or learning curve or whatever, so, or an achievement. So what was it like for you? Because it's not normal. Obviously, you're at United and you're playing with these players who are household names, even to this day. And some of them obviously ain't even playing anymore and they're still household names. So what was it like? What was the experience like for you as a young boy? It was it was massive um, in a, in a lot of ways. I think Yorkie and Coley were two that I really looked up to. Um, York Yorkie signed in the summer that I started the YT, which was obviously the treble winning year. So I've come out of Blennishall and we go into United going to winning the treble. So I look at Teddy was brilliant, Ollie was brilliant. They all had different styles and played in my position, and I learned a lot. So I'm talking. I'd always, you know, even if we finished training and we trained long, I'd go out and I'd, you know, we'd come back in and we trained at Littleton Road, come back to the cliff and they'd have the balls out. They'd be with Brian Kidd or Steve McLaren, whoever it was, just practicing the technique. They're finishing, you know, day in, day out. Beckham with his free kicks. Um, Gary Neville used to practice his body shape and, you know, defending that kind of thing. Um, and I, re- I realised a lot of what, these lads have got is drive, determination, and the, the will to maximise what they are. Mm. Um, it was amazing. It was, it was brilliant. Mm. Tough, tough in one sense because you look at as a sixteen-year-old, you come in and you think, "I want to be in the first team." But then you look and you go, "You mentioned Wheatcroft before. There was Wheaty, there was Fitz, there was David Healy, and there was one or two others that played in the year just the two years above me. Alex Notman, a Scottish international. Yeah, yeah. Then, then you go higher than that in the reserves. And United have bought John Green and he played up front sometimes then as well. Yeah. And then they had other lads like a guy called Jamie Wood and other lads. There's probably about eight players before I got to York Coles, Sheringham Shawshank, Jordi Cruyff would play up front. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So when you look at it, you think, you just got to have that belief that you'll just keep ploughing through. You'll just get through it. And when your time's right, you'll get in and just keep going and scoring your goals and scoring your goals. And I was relentless. I scored so many goals at 17s and then 19s. Um, and then I made my debut at 18 at Stadium Alight in front of 40,000 or whatever it was. And that was like, wow. Mm. Um, 
but the machine, the United machine just kept going on. You know, people don't, didn't have time then to sit and appreciate anything. You weren't allowed to sit and appreciate where you were. Mm. You were just like, okay, you've done that next. Done that, okay, you scored five on Saturday, so what next? What's happening Monday morning? Mm. It was like you were never allowed to sit back and relax and look at anything you'd achieved, no matter how big or small it was. And I think that, that came from the first team. I've heard some first team lads say that they won so many titles. and over the time, they kind of never celebrated them because you were allowed a night or two and then it was like, right, next season, we do better again. Mm. So the, the atmosphere was relentless. Mm. It was relentless and many people fall by the wayside as a result of it and that's from top top to bottom. It's, it's natural. Good players I saw come in and really struggle. Um, when you're looking, above, you're looking at the first team, they really struggled with the demands of, not just of the manager, the demands of the players around them. You know, Roy Keane demanded every single day. But, you could never look at him and say, well, you know what, Roy, something to you, because he, he was on his job every yep. day without fail, you know, without fail. So there was never a, you know, it was never a bone you could pick. Um, and, and I go around the whole squad and that's why he was so good. I get to, you know, you, you sort of make other appearances and you, you know, as you're coming through, you're going loans and that kind of thing. And you just realise that you're, the, the, the magnitude of the task. And at that time, United never brought strikers through. They had David Healy, who was a, playing full international football at 17, 18. Um, he got in and then sold. And it was like, you know, if you ever had any few games, you were sold kind of thing as a striker. Just that way. They was bought in the strikers, being the key position. You know, they brought in the specialists to come yeah. in and finish. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cool. So, this boy came in and it was like, this guy's a joke. Forlan came in and struggled at the beginning, but played a lot in the resis with him. Mm. But then, found his feet. And I think you're, you're afforded that time to find your feet when people have paid money for you. you yeah, know, yeah. Cool. That level of um, opportunity when you come through the youth system anywhere. That's not just Man United, I think it's most places. Mm. Wow, I mean, that must have been a mad experience. But so, I mean, still on your career, you've, you've left United now and you've kind of made a name for yourself at Watford, um, Sheffield United. And that's where you kind of became established. You also played for the England in the 20s as well. So, I mean, so how did you find like leaving United and then not having to start again, but kind of having to prove yourself? Because you still had a name. You still had some clout about you. People knew who you were because obviously how good you were. Um, so how did you find stepping away from the demands of United, but then you went to say Watford and Sheffield United and there was a different type of demand on you? How was that process? Um, it was emotionally, initially hard because I turned down three years, that third year that Sir Alex had offered me at 21, turned down a three-year contract and I just thought I would do the right thing, but I did it because I wasn't playing as much football as I needed and I needed to play. I wanted to forge a career to make sure it was a minimum I had a career. Yeah. I didn't want to be or still sat playing in the reserves as you could have been then and all of a sudden you just fall by the wayside. So yeah. I put immense pressure on myself to perform once I'd done that. Uh, probably too much pressure at times. The last game I played for United, I'd broken my leg. So I played, I left United with a metal plate in my leg, having not played since I'd um, broken it. You know, normally you'd have a few games to come back. So yeah. I joined, that was it. I nearly joined Forrest under um, Paul Hart. Um, Paul Hart took me in. He had the, the team with David Johnson, Genus, Prutton, uh, Marlon Harewood. He had a good side together. And he went, he went I, need, I need you in as like the missing piece of the jigsaw. Um, but I decided to go to Watford because it was familiar. I'd already had two loan spells. Mm. Um, I was comfortable there and, and I enjoyed my time there. They were great. But my first year was horrible. 
Jimmy died. Jimmy Jimmy Davis came on loan. He was so at the time we got we got offered contracts three years each. I turned mine down. He signed his. I signed for Watford. He came on loan to Watford anyway. So we still went as a pair. We played yeah. through the youth together all the way through. Yeah, yeah. And he fortunately died in a car crash the day before the opening day of the season. So that weighed heavy on me without me knowing it. Mm. And then on top of that, I've got a metal plate that I'm playing with in my leg that was just, it was agony all the time. Mm. And you're trying to be a man and you're trying to brave it and you're trying to game face it. Every time you get kicked on that metal plate, you, you just, you know, you, you, you want to lose your mind because mm. it's, it's horrible, but you're still playing and people are watching and people are judging. Yeah. Plus United, so everyone expects you to score 55 goals in one season yeah. and be that guy. Mm. Um, and, and you don't moan, you don't moan, you, you just don't moan, you get on with it. And you, yeah. So, first season was tough. Second season, and at the end of that season, I went away and blew off a bit of steam. I went to Vegas, I went to wherever else, I went to and partied and right. spent a bit of time with the family. But then June the 1st came, and I was like, right, I'm on it. Now I'm going to train every single day. And it was probably a bit before people trained in the summer. People might do a week before they came back. Yeah. I did the whole trained and I got myself in good condition. I thought, I'm not going to let that happen again. I went in pre-season, set off that season, scored nine in my first seven games in the championship and I was flying. Yeah. At the time, the, the likes of Nathan Ellington, Jason Roberts were at Wigan that year. They had a good side, Jimmy Bullard, Leighton Baines, that sort of side. West Ham had Ted Sheringham, Matthew Etherington, Harewood, that then. So there was some good, yeah. good strikes, but I was flying. And then it got to the point where I just did my shoulder and I was out again. And I was like, oh, mate. Scored another sort of seven or eight goals that season. Went, and then I went on loan to Sheffield United um, under Neil Warnock. Enjoyed playing under Neil. I thought he was brilliant for me. He let me just have the freedom to go and do what I wanted on the football mm. pitch, which was really, which was great. Yeah. Um, Ray Lewington was similar. I enjoyed playing under Ray Lewington. He was good as well. Mm. But yeah, Neil gave me the freedom and he, and he had an ambition that was relentless. He's like, we're going to get promoted. You know, mm. so I was like, right, okay, I'm in. That's what I needed to hear because I wanted to get yeah. back to the press. Spent time at Sheffield United, four years, two, two, one and a half, good at the beginning. Then we got relegated um, from the Premier League back down. Two years after that, we're indifferent mm. uh, under different managers, but loved playing at Bramall Lane and really got a great feeling of being there. Mm. Um, all of it in between, I'm having operations, I'm having injuries. I've had, all throughout my career, I had 14 operations spread across oh. the whole thing. So it, it adds up, it adds up. And, and I think every one of them just chips away at you a little bit. Just yeah, takes yeah. The end. And especially when you, you, was, you play the way I used to play, you're cutting around everywhere, you're sharp, you're, you're quick, and just sometimes you're playing in pain and people don't know it. I, I probably went through my mid-20s taking tablets every day. Um, and I'd dose up for games. I'd take two painkillers, two paracetamol and an anti-inflammatory before games. So I didn't feel any pain in my body. Yeah. And, I, and I didn't have the inflammation in my body. And I was just going through taking that. And that wasn't even the doctors giving it to me. I was just sort of like, you find a way to get anti-inflammatory and you take them just to make sure that yeah. you're okay. You weren't feeling pain. I strapped my shoulders every single day. I would dislocate both my shoulders. I had them both, both operated on. My shoulders, the lads laughed at me. They used to say, oh, Robocop. Because I'd go in the physio would strap them up. Yeah, and then tear it off that that orange tape, that copper tape, that yeah, just yeah, yeah. <laughs> I pull it off and it make my skin bleed, and I do it the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and it strap my shoulders. So you realise the what you want if you want it that badly, you're willing to run through brick walls. But sometimes I think later down the line, you know it's to your detriment because 
my missus says to me like sometimes, heck, how old are you? And I get out of bed and walk to the shower in the morning. But then I get in the get in the magic shower and I'm I'm like magic again, I'm alright. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. massive. I mean, um, congratulations for your career. I mean, obviously it's one of them where you, you kind of when you've been to Lillyshaw, you kind of follow everyone's career and stuff. And I, I followed you and obviously did really well. Always were a good player. Um, in terms of, we're going to kind of touch on the end now. You mentioned, obviously, retirement. You touched on your career and stuff like that. And obviously, what you're currently doing now. Um, I always ask the question to kind of everyone that comes on the show, or try to anyway. Do you think more help's needed for athletes? So I'm talking, okay, football, because we've both played. So naturally, we're going to talk about football, but talking all sports. So on a generic form, tennis, swimming, cricket, athletics, whatever it may be, we always hear these stories about kind of athletes struggling to make the transition or whatever, fall into kind of depression, mental health issues, which can be a cause of not knowing what you're going to do after you've retired. Do you think more help's needed, whether it be from an organisation or kind of workplace placements or whatever it may be? I do, I do, but I, I think it's not just the case of someone setting up an organisation and then being the go-to and then that's it. Mm. I think it starts earlier than that. And I mentioned Chris McCready before, he's doing some really good stuff at Man United. Yeah, um, I've seen some of his stuff. Yeah, I mean, he looks at the person as a whole. You know, he, he encourages you to explore things you're interested in. You know, it may, you know we, we, we were brought up in a, in a time where it's solely about football to get yeah. everything out. Just focus on your football mm. and, and the mandatory college work that you did and that was it and you got through it and cracked on. Mm. Whereas if you do have an interest in property, then sit back and learn about it. You know, mm. if you have an interest in being a DJ, then you know what? get your decks at home and enjoy your music. There's, there's yeah. explore you yourself as a person more than more than that. So I think it starts from that age as opposed to doing it when someone's at the back end when the, the pressure's on and time seems to be you know, when they've got a family behind them and they're going, I've got pressure here and I don't know what to do because a lot of people don't make clear decisions when they're under pressure. Mm. So, yes, I think there's, there's, a, there's a huge need for it, but it's not just one organisation. That tends to happen in football where it's, you know, they're the people you go to for racism. They're the people you go to for... Yeah. Your, and it's not that. It's a holistic approach across... There's like a readdress that needs to happen on the whole, on the whole of football yeah. where people think about the person um, because you look at a lot of foreign footballers have that mentality. They enjoy things outside of football. You know, they have yeah. a passion um, outside of football and it's encouraged. It's only, it was only here back in the day that it wasn't. But what I do like to see now is the likes of, you know, certain people now who have gone, well, I'm setting up a clothing line, you know, and I'm not saying for like to distract you from your football, but, you know, no. we look at uh, Marvin Morgan, he set up Fresh Ego Kid, done really well. Mm. Um, Obara stepped away from football because he's got money de Bois, um, another clothing line, clothing line, mm. something they were passionate about, and it's another avenue for them to for them to pursue and have very successful careers in. Um, mm. And they're just two to name name a few. And mm. I'm not clothing line isn't for everybody because it will distract some people. But I'm just talking about fulfilling your passion, whatever it may be. And some mm. there need to be people within football clubs who say, "What else are you interested in? What do you like doing? Well, I tell you what, how about?" We'll we'll put this on for you. You know, if you're interested in cooking, well, I'll tell you what, we'll we'll get a chef in. Do you want to do a bit of cooking? How about we do do something? You know, make it fun, make learning fun, so that well, people can explore themselves. Definitely, I agree with that 100. Um, I I definitely agree with the fact that it needs to be there needs to be more 
of a broader approach to kind of transitioning as such. And it needs to start from a younger age and it needs to be integrated to make it the norm because everyone's got an interest. And sometimes I think as footballers, people are scared to come out. I was never scared to come out. So for me, when I was going to games, going in the hotel or whatever, I'd take a book because I used to like reading. So for me, I still read to this day and it's not, I don't read fantasy or whatever. I just read like factual books. That's just yeah. me. And no one ever said anything to me, whether that was my personality, they, they probably knew that it wouldn't affect me, but I've seen mm. people shy away from stuff. Even you mentioned Marvin Morgan. I can't mm. remember the team that he was playing for. He had just signed and I remember him, I think it was a podcast he was talking on recently. Yeah. Um, and the, the gaffer was just going around kind of talking to the players and he said, oh, like, what, what have you been doing or what are you actually doing? And he said something about kind of, oh, I've got this like, COVID line I'm thinking about. Setting up and he shut him down and said just concentrate on your football now this is recent this has happened in the last few years because Marvin Morgan's like our generation so it's yeah. still happening to this day and I remember growing up and managers coaches would say look just concentrate on your football um, everything else is a distraction it's not always the case the stats are there to see to show that if you've got an interest outside of your chosen sport which is not a hindrance to your performance um, it's gonna enable you to perform better on the pitch the stats are there so for me if you've got something where it's stats driven and the stats can show that okay well if you do x y and z you'll get potentially this result you can't really argue with it um so for me it's massive what you just mentioned there um in terms of transferable skills what have you taken so this is you within your own psyche now like what have you taken from football playing football on a daily basis from the age of I think nine or ten you mentioned mm. into what you're doing now so MUTV, Skywork, BBC, behind the camera, yeah. coaching, liaising with players, football teams, um, obviously your agency work and things like that. I think communication is one mm. you know you, you learn to communicate with your teammates you understand what team you, you know you're part of a team you've always been part of a team so you understand how to work with people yeah um, Man, demand from yourself within that role and identify your role. Um, I think there's a, there's a drive that you have to have to play at that level and that can be transferred into any arena. Surround yourself with the right people just the same as you would in a football club mm. and put your drive into that and you, you, know, you can find success. Um, I think critical thinking and being resilient at the same time, you know, you're being able to think on your feet um, be willing, to, being willing to get things wrong, which you know you do. You take a shot in football, you miss. Okay, well, I've been willing to get it wrong. By willing to be willing to get something wrong, you you you'll eventually get it right. Mm. Um, so those kind, of, I do relate a lot of my life to football because football is what I know. But I've also, you know, and that's 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 it. So I kind of go, if I was on a pitch or if I was in football, how would this this whole thing pan out? Mm. Um, and I think I think just to back yourself. You know, you've got to back yourself against all odds. How many times, Danny, as a kid, does somebody turn around to you and say, oh, you won't make it, or they put their fears on you, mm. you know? Oh, you'll never make it. You know how, many, how hard it is to make it? You know what? Yeah, you probably won't make it. All right, well, take your fears and go over the head, mate. You know what I mean? Because that's not, I don't need that in my, in, my, in my space. And you couldn't go into a football pitch with it. There would be no one in your team who would go, Tell you what, lads. You know, let's let's go out there because we're probably not going to win. But it's just it's just not in your in your nature. You go out there to win. So you've got that desire and that will to win to let you that you transfer as well. And I just think 
educating yourself, putting all that into, into a, something that you're passionate about can only be successful if you're committed to it. Brilliant, mate. Great insight. And um, once again, thanks for coming on. Um, I always like to get people to obviously promote kind of what they're doing now. So we obviously know about uh, MUTV, that's kind of South West Country, as is Sky and the BBC. But in terms of your agency work, um, just let us know where people can find you, the name of it, and obviously. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, re I've recently just rebranded re and everything, so everything will come up. It's, my agency will it'll come up. I'll send it to you. It's called Autograph Sport, Autograph Sports Management. It'll be on Instagram at Autograph Sport. Um, but it'll be it'll be up and running probably in the next couple of weeks. You'll see all the new the new visuals will be will be there. So yeah, fantastic. Good to see you, Danny. Um, looking looking trimmer than ever, <laughs> mate. I, to be honest, I, I don't go to the gym. I don't do running or anything. I just think I'm one of those lucky people who don't really have to do exercise. Um, but yeah, you're looking well yourself. Like I said, we haven't spoke for for years, and um, it's great to have you on the podcast. I know how busy you are and. Sounds like you're doing great things. Um, all I can do is wish you the best of luck. Try and keep in touch as well. We always, people always say this, but obviously we're getting older now. Obviously everyone's more mature and stuff, and we're both on LinkedIn, and that's how we obviously uh, spoke in order to get you on the show. But yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Obviously, um, good luck, and we'll keep in touch going forward. Top man, Danny. Good to see you. Take care. Good luck with everything. Cheers, mate. See you soon. Take care.